Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and in this episode, I'm joined by Steve Cook, Managing Director of Product Management Exchange Traded Funds at Harbor Capital Advisors. Steve came to Harbor via State Street and over 20 years at BNY Mellon, where he helped launch the NASDAQ Triple Q Fund in the late 90s and went on to lead the global ETF team that launched thousands of ETFs around the world. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. Now, Steve, there are two things I'd like to cover in our chat today. One of them is the idea of an inflation-hedged ETF, which is something you and your partners at Harbor have created. But before we get there, I'd like to take a step back and talk more generally about the rise of ETFs. We touched on ETFs a few months ago when Samara Cohen was on the show talking about what BlackRock, BlackRock is up to. But today I'd like to start with what I'll call the business case for owning ETFs. They've been pretty polarizing in well, frankly, CFA circles, since passive funds have attracted a ton of assets away from active funds over the past 15 years or so. And the CFA curriculum graduates a lot of active fundamental or quant analysts, myself among them. But there are reasons beyond fees that investors and their advisors have been using them. And I, for one, would like to learn a little bit more about what those reasons are. So Steve, let's leave out active ETFs for now and start with the original iteration of ETFs as passive index replicators. Can you take us through why advisors have preferred these structures over, say, mutual funds? Sure. I think there's, you know, when you put aside the cost piece of it, I think there's a few different reasons. One, there's some tax efficiency that come along with ETFs. And that really comes down to when an ETF takes in new assets or when somebody redeems out, there's not cash exchange. There's actually the underlying securities or holdings that are in the index that get exchanged for value. So if I'm creating shares, I give custodian the underlying constituents in the index and I get back the ETF shares. And what that does is instead of the investment manager having to buy and sell securities utilizing cash within the fund, you're not generating or realizing capital gains on a frequent basis embedded in the fund. And so myself as the investor controls when I pay those capital gains by my entry point and exit point. And then the other thing I think is really core and key is the transparency aspect of ETFs. If I'm an advisor and I'm building a diversified portfolio and I want to allocate particularly to technology or some other sector exposure, I don't want to end up having to find out later on that the exposure I thought I was getting had actually drifted and you know my mid cap actually owned large cap or my large cap owned mid cap because the investment manager was trying to juice returns a little bit. So the transparency and purity of the allocation, I think is something that advisors over time grew to really appreciate. And so the tax efficiency and the transparency and then the ease of being and liquidity associated with ETF. So if, again, uh, if I'm looking at it and I want to rebalance the portfolio and I don't necessarily want to have to wait till the end of the day because I, I'm worried about the Fed raising rates or I'm worried about some other aspect occurring within the investment world that's going to affect the portfolio today, I don't have to wait and, and take on those losses. I can adjust the portfolio intraday when I want to. And so all those things... I think came together and advisors over time realized that the ETF structure offered some benefits to their clients that they really wanted to take advantage of. 
And I guess one I was thinking of as well is uh, I did some work on portable alpha a bunch of years ago, and uh, I guess that's another one. Hey, that uh, you can get a pure pure source of beta for use in structured products. Yeah, that's a very interesting, and that's probably one that's come about more, right? So you refer you kind of referenced the beginning of ETFs. I, I don't think the portable alpha concept had really taken off amongst advisors until more recently, and I think you're starting to see. Uh, a lot more innovation on that front in the ETF space with some of the products that have come out over the years, whether it's be Portable Alpha, you know, Macro, some of these buffered ETFs that isolate Alpha, as you as you noted. So I think that's something that has become much more commonplace in the ETF space more recently. So active ETFs are an area, obviously, of huge growth recently in in the class. Tell us what's been happening there to drive that growth. Sure. So I think active ETFs kind of first came on the scene uh, 2014 or so, maybe a little bit before that in some products, but they really started to take hold at that point. But there were some regulatory issues that um, were present with what was called exemptive relief at the time. And so if an ETF issuer wanted to, to launch ETFs, they had to go for what was called exemptor relief because ETFs naturally violate certain areas of the 40 Act. And so the, the exemptor relief, when it was granted over time, ha- allowed issuers to do different things. Uh, and so you had kind of an exemptor relief arbitrage. If you wanted to launch an active ETF, you had to transact in exactly the makeup of the underlying securities. And if you didn't do that, then you had to use cash and that really put active ETFs at somewhat of a disadvantage to some of the older index-based products. What happened was in 2019, moving into 2020, the SEC and the regulators really revamped the entire process for launching an ETF. And if you followed certain rules, if you were transparent, you were allowed to launch an ETF and you were able to take advantage of all of the benefits of the ETF structure regardless of whether it was active or passive, you no longer had to file for exemptive relief and you didn't have to worry about then having a, a substandard model for launching your products. And so that opened the door for traditional active firms to launch product and to kind of bring them out in a, a much more shortened cycle. And I think you saw, you know, with that kind of change in regulatory process, um, there's been a, a, a much higher interest of traditional mutual fund active firms bringing ETF product to market. And then I think with more product has come more interest from the advisor community. If you only have one or two large cap equity ETFs in the active world that are available to you, you're probably not going to put a whole lot of effort towards researching those and finding out if they're right for your clients. But if you have 20 to 25 and you have some really good, solid choices from managers who have been the, in the active fund space for a long time, all of a sudden now it becomes more interest to the advisors as a way to allocate client assets. I wanted to pull a little bit on the thread about transparency that you mentioned earlier. Now, one of the things about active ETFs is that they need to publish their holdings daily. Now, mutual fund managers are fairly protective of their holdings lists so that folks can't front run them when they're putting on a new trade. So how do active ETF managers control for this risk? So that's one one requirement if you want to launch on, under 6C11 that you have to publish your holdings on a daily basis. Now there are 
active, non-fully transparent products that are available on the market, but you still need to file for exemptive relief for those products utilizing one of the structures that has been approved by the SEC. So I'm just curious because I, you know, I think about our own products that we've managed over the years or strategies and they like to, analysts like to hold those secrets fairly close to the chest, especially when they're in the midst of, you know, executing, uh, you know, a rebalance or a change. How does that look for the managers of these active ETFs in terms of executing these, these trades in the, in the fund without having folks front running them by being able to see, see what's in there each day? Yeah. So I, I think there are certain things that are available in the ETF structure that can allay some of the worries that a manager might have or an analyst might have in disclosing the portfolio on a day-to-day basis. One is that there is basically a 24-hour lag. So if the investment manager is making a change today, the marketplace isn't going to really know about that until it's disclosed late tonight or early tomorrow before the open. So it's not like there's immediate transparency into trades. And in certain asset classes, most managers can get their trades done in one day. They don't have to do it over a number of days. And so it's not as large a concern. The other thing that can be done is that with the regulatory change, what's called a custom baskets are allowed more widely across the industry. And a custom basket is really just targeting specific securities in that in-kind process that I talked about previously. So if we publish a list of securities that somebody needs in order to know what they have to buy and contribute to the fund to create shares, or that what they would expect if they redeem shares, you can actually create baskets that are made up of solely securities that you want to add to your fund or solely securities that you want to move out of your fund. And you can then do large you know, remove large chunks of a holding or bring in large chunks of a holding through the authorized participant process. And so you can do it in increments of, of $500,000 know, at a time. And so you can adjust the portfolio utilizing the ins and outs of the fund with specific authorized participants. And you can change the makeup of the portfolio without the broader industry knowing until all of those trades have already happened. And so with securities that might not trade as heavily as like a large cap, if you're you know moving down to small, mid or mid cap stocks, you can take advantage of that custom basket process to acquire large chunks of securities without having to drag it out over a few days. And so you're repositioning the portfolio much more quickly. And so the, these techniques that are available when you start talking to asset managers or making them aware of, of these structural processes that take place, they get more and more comfortable with the idea of daily transparency and understanding that uh, they have some ways of making changes to the portfolio without everybody finding out at a point where they could front run. Once everybody finds out about these trades, they're already done and there's no ability to front run the, the allocations. I said one more question on the on the efficiency of the structure, and that was just kind of a two-parter on it. I wonder if you can talk about cash drag relative to mutual funds and also you know trading costs, who owns them, and, and, uh, and how does that compare? Two really great questions, Mike, and, and there are also lesser-known advantages of the ETF structure over traditional mutual funds. And so cash drag being one, in the mutual fund world, generally the manager particularly in, in times of volatility, 
has to leave anywhere from three to five percent of the portfolio uninvested to meet redemption uh, needs without having to generate a bunch of sales in the, in the portfolio. And because ETFs again don't transact in you know cash on the way in and way out, they don't have to hold that slug of three to five percent in cash for liquidity purposes. So they can be fully invested. And so having the ability to be fully invested over you know a, a five to ten year period of time allows generally for outperformance on the same strategy because you're not the portfolio manager isn't experiencing drag on that that three to five percent in cash. And then the other important fact that you brought up is that trading costs in a mutual fund you know are borne by the other holders of the mutual fund. So if I am a, a long-term holder of a fund, and you might contribute $10 million today into the fund. That $10 million flows in in cash. The investment manager then goes out and buys $10 million worth of securities to put that money to work. And the trading costs associated with acquiring that $10 million in securities, part of that is a cost that I would bear and all the other long-term holders of that mutual fund would bear. So we are subject to the capital inflows and outflows of other investors. On the ETF front, again, because everything is transacted on an in-kind basis, meaning the underlying securities are contributed for creations and underlying securities are sent out of the fund to satisfy redemptions, uh, the investor themselves pays for the trading costs of those securities through the spread of the ETF. And so if I'm getting into the ETF and I, I um, contribute $10 million, the underlying authorized participant charges me as part of my entry cost, as part of the share price that I pay for that ETF, they embed the cost of acquiring those underlying securities before they contributed them into the ETF. And so all the trading costs in general are externalized from an ETF and borne by the person who is who is getting into or getting out of the ETF. And so by externalizing those costs, the operations of the fund of an ETF is cheaper and more cost efficient for long-term holders. Okay, let's dig a bit deeper into the inflation-hedged ETF that your team at Harbor have designed. So what if you could tell me what the genesis is for this fund and what sets it apart from other inflation, inflation hedging tools? Yeah, so I, I think it um, benefits to think about how Harbor looks at launching ETFs. Generally, we want to try and solve an investor problem. We don't want to launch a Me Too fund, you know, another S&P 500 fund or something else. We're trying to bring products to the market that help investors and advisors solve a portfolio allocation problem. And so towards the end of last summer, there was a lot of discussion about inflation if you recall, a lot of folks felt like it was transitory, and that was kind of the generally accepted line in the marketplace. And we kind of started asking questions, is, trans is inflation really transitory? And if it's not, you know, are there really good products that are available to investors to help them through a period of longer term inflation? And so we took a look at the market, and certainly there were other products that were available based on other commodity indices like uh, BCOM or GSCI. But the real question was, were those products specifically designed to help investors during an inflationary period? And, and the answer is no. Those indices were created as ways for manufacturing firms to hedge risk or other folks who had commodity 
exposure to hedge risk. They were, were not really meant as an investment tool for folks to fight inflation. Uh, and so we looked at, well, could we find an index-based product or uh, an ETF product that would be a better tool for investors during an inflationary period? We ended up uh, uncovering a manager out of Connecticut called Quantix Commodities. They were a firm that was founded by folks that had been longtime Goldman Sachs commodity traders. They had run the commodity desk for a period of time there as well. And we were able to leverage their expertise and their understanding of the way commodities worked to design an index and thus an ETF product that was specifically meant to help investors provide them an allocation that would be better investment during an inflationary period. And so that was kind of the genesis of product set and why we thought uh, that Hedger, ticker HGER, uh, the all-weather inflation-focused ETF was a great kind of product and, and a timely product for the market. So the, as I understand it, the, uh, the Hedger ETF is effectively has a couple of focuses in terms of the sources of inflation, and then the investments that are actually within the, within the index are, are entirely commodity-based. So I wonder if you could take us through that that differentiation between uh, the sources of inflation and, and how Quantix helps build and, and sort of rebalance and manage that index. Sure. So went on a proprietary path of creating an index, again, that was um, specifically designed uh, for inflationary periods. They broke it down. The, the underlying constituents in the index were broken down by their expected inflationary sensitivity. Again, so the, the experience of the Quantix team in the commodity front, they utilized uh, their knowledge of the market and their years of trading in the market to look at commodities and include commodities that uh, had the highest commodity path through cost. You know, and what that means is just if copper is very expensive and the spot price of copper is rising, are all of the goods that utilize copper on the back end does that price flow through to all of the, the purchasing that we as consumers would utilize copper for? That's important when trying to design an index specifically made up of commodities that's going to be in inflation sensitive. And that's not always the basis for how others uh, have commodities included in their index. The other area that they look at is correlation to CPI. So the higher the correlation of the commodity spot price performance to uh, US-based CPI is important, again, because CPI is one of the areas that measures inflation and sensitivity of inflation. And then the third area they look at is correlation of the commodity in periods where CPI is changing year over year. So it's not just a correlation to CPI, but also when CPI is high and it moves up year over year, does that correlation stay and, and remain consistent? And so those are the inflation sensitivity metrics uh, that Quantix utilizes. The next is what's called roll yield return. And really that is just looking at the spot price of a commodity and how it's going to perform against the rolling commodity futures prices in that. And so can you take advantages of periods of backwardation in a specific commodity, i.e. Uh, backwardation is defined as when a commodity's front month or current spot price is higher than the expected price on 
the role that you roll into that commodity feature two to three months out. Uh, and that's called backwardation. And essentially, if you enter periods of that, by rolling from the front month to the back month contract, you're embedding gains in the fund and you're embedding gains in that in the futures role. Uh, and that's what makes up um, a proprietary quality score that the Quantix team utilizes to evaluate commodities for their inclusion into the ETF. And then there's some diversification overlays that go along with that. Uh, you can't have any sector make up more than 50% of the index. And there's a 20% cap on any individual commodity uh, within the, the benchmark with the exception of gold. And the reason I call out the exception of gold is because there's one last piece of the way the index is calculated. There's a scarcity and debasement indicator, which basically is utilized to judge what the allocation to gold in the index will be. Again, if, you're, if inflation is, driven being, is being driven by scarcity, we're going to overweight the assets to the other commodities in the index. And if it's being driven by debasement, you know, the, the devaluing of the currency, you'll overweight to gold. And so all of these kind of adjustments and factors that go into calculating the weights in the index are really why we, we say this particular product was custom designed for inflation sensitivity and why it's a better commodity allocation for investors during periods of inflation. So Steve, as we know, the short-term prints are still huge for inflation, but the bond markets are telling us that long-term inflation expectations are remaining anchored sort of in the 2% range. So do you see this as more of a short to medium-term risk management tool, or, or how do you see investors using ETF over time? Yeah, we don't see it really as a short-term risk management tool. Again, some of the benefits of the index design and construction that I just talked about mean that even in periods where commodities might not be rising, commodity prices might not be rising that quickly because of the worry of future inflation and the backwardation associated with these contracts, you're going to get a pretty decent roll yield, pretty decent performance, even if the commodity market's moving sideways. And so because of that, it's, you know, we feel comfortable saying that this is more of a longer term allocation. Investors, you know, we look at it are really probably under allocated to commodities and have been for a long time. Even this year, throughout the course of the year, we've seen pretty good inflows into uh, commodity-based products. But overall investors, the makeup of their portfolio is less than 1% allocation to commodities. If you look at the last commodity boom cycle, that allocation was well over one and a half percent, right? And so there's this kind of trepidation that everybody thinks, well, the move's already happened. Do I really want to allocate the commodities now? And so they haven't really made the necessary change to their portfolio allocated commodities because they, they're, they're fearing like they're on the, the back end of the cycle. And really, we don't think that's the case. We still think that the broad investors are underexposed to the commodity sector. They need more of this allocation. You know, we've all seen what the traditional 60-40 portfolio, how that has performed this year. And if you had had a 5 to 8% allocation in commodities, you know, as part of that 60-40 portfolio, you really would have performed a lot better over the course of this year. Uh, and we see that continuing to be the case, you know, through the, the at least the first half of next year. And that smoothing effect that commodities would have had on a portfolio 
even if they're not moving up, really because of the roll yield would give investors a lot of protection. So we're down to the end of our time here, Steve, and uh, I've got the final question for you, which is, what was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? So my first job in the industry was as a unit investment trust accountant. You know, we used to calculate the NAVs and the values of UITs, which were, you know, fixed asset investments. And, and ironically, pretty thankful that I took that path because the first ETFs in the market, the, the NASDAQ Qs, the Dow Diamonds, the Spider Trust, were all actually structured as UITs. A lot of people don't know that. They were not funds. They still aren't. And so that's kind of how I backed my way into the ETF space because I just happened to be working in the UIT division at the time that, that they were uh, launching product. And I said, wow, this is a new and interesting thing. Maybe I'll try and get involved. Um, and so that, that kind of uh, launched my path into ETFs over 25 years ago. Taking myself out for coffee, interesting question. You know, I think the, the best piece of advice that I could have given myself at the time was, you know, don't settle, don't, you know, get comfortable, kind of be the person that agitates a little bit, always ask questions, shows curiosity. You know, I, I think oftentimes when you get into a situation where maybe there's a hundred young new college graduates all starting out in a role, everybody kind of settles into something and, and uh, wants to fit in rather than trying to drive their career. And so I think just would have encouraged myself and told myself it's okay to take a different path and be different and agitate a little bit, particularly, you know, in a large banking environment, you know, you'll challenge yourself to take some risks and do different things. And, and that's always a good thing. I've been speaking today with Steve Cook, Managing Director of Product Management Exchange Traded Funds at Harbor Capital Advisors. Thanks for coming on the show today, Steve. Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets. Guiding Assets.